Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a jury verdict against Katy Perry is the latest in a string of recent high-profile music copyright battles. We speak of lawyer and musician Kurt Dahl. Also, it was 20 years ago this week that the Blair Witch Project was released in theaters, a one-of-a-kind marketing and commercial success, the likes of which we'll probably never see again. Plus, Quebec is taking steps to try and rein in consumer credit card debt. Should other provinces be doing the same? So today, jurors are deciding how much Katy Perry, her collaborators, and her record label owe the writers of a Christian rap song. The jury has already found that the Katy Perry song Dark Horse improperly copied from Marcus Gray's song Joyful Noise. They're now deliberating the amount, how much they should get. Both sides have agreed that Perry herself made a profit of about $2.4 million on the song. Uh, Lawyers for Gray claim that the instrumental plays through 45% of Dark Horse. They're asking for 45% of its earnings. Uh, and again, just a, as a brief refresher, is kind of an idea of where there's similarities between these two songs. Your boy's been a Christian quite a few years. Victory and faith, but I failed in my fears. Okay, so not exactly the same song. Clearly some similarities. Uh, and, and look, there have been a lot of these cases, it seems, as of late. Of course, there's an ongoing battle, one that's going to be heard yet again later this year over Stairway to Heaven. And whether that intro for Stairway to Heaven copies the instrumental song Taurus by Spirit. just heard that you might think oh stairway to heaven's playing turn it up uh there was a case just recently where it was found that the song blurred lines that that song had copied from the marvin Gaye song got to give it up Uh, yeah, again, similarities. Uh, one other one involving Marvin Gaye, the Ed Sheeran song, Thinking Out Loud. Has Baby been accused man. of sounding too much like... Let's get it on. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, and so <sighs> these things are inherently subjective. Songs are going to sound similar to other songs. Uh, people are going to be influenced by musicians. Got an email from someone who says, Rob, I'm an amateur singer-songwriter. My point is that musicians are sponges. We listen and likely unconsciously assimilate all the bits we hear and like. But at the same time, if you've created something, you have a right to protect that. It's yours. And someone can't just come in and steal it or steal elements of it. I want to get some insight on some of this from someone who really knows both sides of this question. Kurt Dahl uh, is a partner at Entertainment Lawyer with Murphy and Company LLP, and he's a musician. He's a drummer with the band One Bad Son. You can find out more at LawyerDrummer.com. Kurt, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. I would imagine there are a lot of elements of the music business, not just the publishing side that 
you know, musicians probably, if they don't, they probably should have some, some legal advice, legal representation, I would imagine. Yeah, and especially when it comes to these sort of issues with plagiarism, it seems like these cases, more and more of them keep popping up. And, you know, pleading ignorance is not going to get you off the case, right? You know, when it comes to lyrics, right? I mean, if I write a song called Stairway to Heaven and I copy all the lyrics of Stairway to Heaven, there's no doubt about it. I've, I've copied that song. But there's a real challenge when it comes to music, when it comes to chords and riffs, and at what point it crosses that line. You're 100% right. Yeah, lyrics, is, you're right, pretty easy. You, you print out the two different songs and, and present that to a judge, and it's pretty clear if, if there's something's been appropriated. Um, but music, yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the Stairway and the Taurus case, I mean, definite similarities, but, but then there's, there's differences, right? And at the end of the day, I mean, both sides end up hiring an expensive musicologist, which is a, a music expert that dissects the songs into the, in a very scientific way. Um, and then, you know, the, the best, the best argument wins, but, um, suffice to say there's, it's a fine line between inspiration and plagiarism. And it seems like that line just keeps not to pardon the pun, but the line keeps getting blurred. Yes, it does. Uh, it's interesting too, because there are people with, I think, unique kind of insight into this and and, you know, both sides presented those kinds of arguments during this trial. It does seem odd to me that we leave the ultimate decision to a jury, to people who are ultimately kind of layman's on this. I mean, juries have an important role in our legal system, but it almost seems like maybe in, a, in these kinds of cases, you need, I don't know, some kind of a, an independent panel of musicologists. Is that even doable in our legal system? You know, that's a great point, because at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, you play the song to your average person, and they may think it's similar. Like, how many times do you... You know, if you're at the dinner table or something or just discussing with friends, I mean, everyone's got such a different opinion on music and and what makes one person love a song makes another person hate it. And these are the people that are going to be on the jury deciding, you know, you know a $7 million case in, in the Blurred Lines example. Uh, you're right. Maybe there could be some sort of panel that is, is put together. Because, um, yeah, right now it seems like we're it's sort of the Wild West in terms of copyright infringement yeah and and you know pharrell williams who was uh, involved in writing and producing blurred lines and, and he made the argument that you know we we were trying to create a, a marvin gay vibe we were inspired yeah. by marvin gay right and and it clearly artists of that stature do influence those who come after them and there's there's ways of paying tribute i guess or, or homage to them without stealing from them but but is that also a fine line yeah, and that's, I think that was really detrimental that he admitted that. Yeah, well, kind like, of, yeah. Like, that's what the other lawyer, or that's what the, you know, the Marvin Gaye lawyer relied on. Um, and you're, you're so right. I mean, I, I see it all the time in the rock world with, you know, examples like Greta Van Fleet, for example. You know, everyone says they're ripping off Led Zeppelin, but there's been no, there's been no plagiarism suit because they're sort of ripping off the overall vibe as opposed to, like, a, a particular song. And somehow that's okay. But if they put in the stairway riff into one of the songs, then they're, they're in hot water, you know? Um, but you're right. As musicians, I mean, if you want to get philosophical about it, I mean, arguably there is no, there's no such thing as an original thought, right? We're, it's a, everything's coming from somewhere else. Um, but in the same sense, when you, you know, you, like you said at the outset, I mean, you write a song that's your, all, your own. It's influenced by all the influences you have in your life and in society. But once you write it, then 
then you get protection of it. So mm-hmm. it's, it, and that's what copyright is supposed to balance. But right now it just seems like there's a lot of people, you know, dropping lawsuits against each other. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I just saw the movie recently yesterday. The guy wakes up in the, in a world where the Beatles oh. don't exist. And there's kind of right. an inside joke in the movie where Oasis, the band Oasis, also doesn't exist in that I guess that they were so heavily influenced by the Beatles. If the Beatles right. didn't exist, they wouldn't exist, right? And, and right. that's, you know, it's another example of this where clearly the Beatles inspired a whole bunch of different musical acts and, and even, you know, generations later. But at the same time, look, what they created, their songs, those are their songs, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think... I guess we people have sort of uh, been, you know lifted from others for a long time, right? I mean, if you go back, like Led Zeppelin took from all the, the blues musicians, and Bob Dylan took from Woody Guthrie, and and you know the Stones admit to taking from all the blues guys. It's sort of that was the whole first wave of, of rock is ripped off from the blues. Um, I think we just hear about it more now, and maybe there's more cases going to court because it's easier to to sort of I mean just from a technology standpoint to to lift from other songs. And with that Katy Perry song, it sounds like the exact, that sort of, whatever that, that riff thing is, mm-hmm. but they just, they just uh, slowed it down. Um, so from a tech, technological standpoint, maybe it's just easier to, to sort of steal things, but, but you're right. It, it's, it's been happening for, for as long as music has been around. And the question is, is copyright um, able to adapt? Is it able to, is it the right way to, you know, should we build a copyright thing? Um, I mean, obviously, if we couldn't, then, how, you know, how would the whole music industry work? Right. There, there's a big issue with that for a long time with, with hip-hop music, and I think the Beastie Boys album, uh, Paul's Boutique, was kind of the, the epoch right. of that, where uh, this was right before all the rules changed, and samples had to be cleared, and credit had to be given. I mean, you couldn't make that Beastie Boys record today, and for a long time, a, a lot of that music couldn't be be put online or put on streaming services because uh, of those those issues. So, I mean, the music industry has been dealing with these issues in a lot of different ways for a very long time. Yeah, and that's a great, great point. I mean, Paul's Boutique, like, what a great album. And you're right, they couldn't have afforded to, uh, to make it today because with all the samples and the clearances. For the artist himself, uh, how important is it to protect what's yours, even if... Others might disagree as to whether you have a case. I mean, you, you got to fight for what's yours, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I acknowledge that you know we have influences as as, as a band and blah, blah blah. But if if someone then stole our our number one song and made, tried to claim it as their own, then of course I'd say, hey, we got to protect this. So um, I think you work hard as a musician, and it's it's one of the most difficult careers out there. So when you have success, yeah, I mean. That's how you make a living, right? It is protecting your, your copyrights. One thing, too, I found odd about the Katy Perry case is that it, it indicted everybody because Katy Perry wrote the lyrics for that song. No one's suggesting that the lyrics were stolen. Uh, but because she was basically a, a party to it all, uh, that, that she's on the hook as well, including the people that, that did the music. I, I found that kind of odd. Yeah, and, and perhaps even bigger is like she, her, it's her name and all the articles getting all the press that she stole. Yeah. But you're right. Like her contribution to the song was, was totally original. Um, my guess is whoever the producer was that brought in that, that, that stolen riff is probably not going to get uh, any more songs with Katy Perry. Well, I guess that's just it. I mean, a lot of big artists these days, some, some do write their own songs, but for others, it's, uh, you know, 
go find me a song. And, uh, well, here's a song, and we found this new up-and-coming songwriter, and this sounds like a real hit. I guess maybe don't take his word for it is what this is suggests. I th- you're right. I think these days, just with more and more of these claims, I think artists are going to have to be a lot more careful, right, in terms of where, where your song is coming from. Yeah, yeah, it's quite fascinating. All right, much more at uh, LawyerDrummer.com. Kurt, uh, appreciate your input on this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. It's an honor. Thank you. All right, take care. That is Kurt Dahl. He's uh, an entertainment lawyer, partner with Murphy & Company LLP, and a drummer by night. Drummer for the band One Bad Son. But coming at it from a lawyer's perspective, coming at it from a musician's perspective, and I guess these days, and if you could be both, uh, at least you get those bases covered. We had a conversation recently about the year that was 1999, 20 years ago. And what an incredible year it was for movies. Now there's a debate uh, amongst movie fans as to what was the best year for movies. But you can certainly make a case for 1999. And what's unique about 1999 is just the wide variety of movies. Sometimes it feels like Hollywood just sticks to a formula and you got to get a lot of the same kind of movies. 1999 had it all. You know, movies like Phantom Menace, of course, the Star Wars prequel. Remember the uh, all the uh, insanity around that movie? Uh, Fight Club, The Matrix. Think about influential those movies were. The Sixth Sense, American Pie. How many imitators those had? And another movie that came out in 1999, in fact, came out 20 years ago this week, spawned a whole lot of imitators. And really kind of not just changed, but almost reinvigorated. In, in a lot of the same way maybe that The Sixth Sense did, the horror genre. But The Blair Witch Project was something different. It wasn't just a movie. It was an event. It was the first movie probably to really capitalize on what became known as a viral campaign. I don't even know if we called it that then. Right, I mean, the internet certainly existed in 1999. I think that was the year that um, the Phantom Menace trailer was posted online, and, and people went nuts for that. Um, but certainly it helped spread the word about this movie. And it was really clever how they positioned what was essentially a low-budget, very low-budget movie. The idea that it wasn't just a movie. This was something that happened. This was found footage of a terrifying incident. And they laid a whole lot of groundwork for this movie to the point that a lot of people going didn't really know what they were going to see. Or whether any of it was actually real. It was pretty brilliant. And I really doubt that you could pull it off again. Especially after all the imitators that followed. There's an interesting write-up uh, today in the New York Times. It was also in the National Post as well. Looking at just how influential this movie was. And the impact that it had. Joining us uh, on the line to talk more about it is Jake Kring Schreifels. He's a, a senior editor at Yankees Magazine, also a freelance culture writer. Writes for a variety of publications, including, as mentioned, today in the New York Times. Jake, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. 1999, as, as I say, and, and I sure, I'm sure you would agree. I mean, it was, it was an incredibly influential year in so many ways when it came to movies, wasn't it? It really was. Um, there, like you mentioned, there is such a diversity there when you look back. And it was funny, I actually, earlier this year, uh, in, the, in an article for The Ringer, I did a bit of an oral history on the movie Office Space, another movie in 1999, mm-hmm. came out earlier in the year. 
and you know another one of those influential movies and it seemed like there was a lot of those movies in a way that you could almost relate to the millennium uh anxiety of the time a lot of people worried about y2k the internet as as we mentioned and we'll talk about with blair witch was really just coming into its own and people were starting to really sink their teeth into a lot of the possibilities of what this new virtual reality this new world could be and so you have a movie like office space where there's they're actually in an office working with computers and you're actually worried about actual big hoaxes like creating uh you know a, a computer scan that could steal money from a company in in the case of the Blair Witch you're introducing this lo-fi camera technology for the first time and all, all of a sudden filmmakers and you're seeing in large cineplexes all over the country are using video cameras that your grandpa might be using and it really started to blend this uh, this weird reality and fiction, and I think that's what really started to get a lot of uh, of play, especially with this movie, was just the authenticity factor as as you started to get those anxieties about the new millennium and and the internet. Now you're also contemplating well, what's real and what's mm-hmm. not. Yeah, and and they did a really good job of pulling that off that I think a lot of people going to see the movie, it wasn't just, oh, this looks like a good movie. It was kind of like, what is this, right? There was just kind of this mystique around it. Yeah, and they really started, this was a group of filmmakers that kind of all knew each other. They go back to University of Central Florida as, as film students. They had this idea for a long time. They were getting really tired of, some of the horror films of the of the early 90s and, and just feeling like the stuff that they grew up on there was an old tv show in search of that they really liked um and they, they wanted to get back to something that would really genuinely like terrify people what 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 is the the unknown is so terrifying we saw you go back to jaws right the biggest the biggest uh movie of the 70s in some ways and also because of the fact that they weren't showing the shark in its form at all until the very end you're always wondering what is that unknown uh you know opposition that that that, that looming factor in these movies and so what they they come up with is a complete created story uh, of this witch and, and all of the, the backstory that goes back to the 1800s. I mean, they were just creating a story for fun in some ways. Mm-hmm. They thought, let's, let's make this tied to reality. Let's give it a real place, Burkittsville, Maryland. Let's have three people kind of from obscurity that are going to act as film students and go into these haunted woods and pretend like they're on a, you know, their own documentary project. And and so there was just no real background you could do on this movie. There wasn't any Facebook back then. You couldn't figure out who, who Heather or Mike or Josh was. They were just random people in the world, and you thought, well, maybe maybe this is an actual Maybe they did disappear. So there was a, a lot of anxiety, I think, with that, because there is so much unknown at that moment. The Internet was just taking off there were some you know early search engines but you're not going to be able to find the specifics of uh three students there weren't really those internet databases for colleges and universities so a lot of that was playing to their advantage you know how do you create this story and nobody can really fact check it in a lot of ways one of the big catalysts for the movie was was essentially a a documentary they created it aired on i think it was the sci-fi channel 
that, that was about, as you say, establishing this backstory that, that there was something suspicious that happened so many years ago in this one part of, of the United States. And people still say it wasn't obvious that it was necessarily connected to the movie, but it, it, it was trying to create, right, as you say, this, this sort of backdrop where people wondered how much of it was, was true. Yeah, the funny thing about that, too, is they had not really planned for what would eventually become the Blair Witch Project to be the actual movie. They were thinking they were going to create more of a backstory, and they would intersperse some of what we see in the Blair Witch Project throughout their movie. But a lot of it they were going to rely on was archival footage. And as they got further and further into the project, they realized all the riveting stuff was actually the kids in the woods. So what they did was they took all of their archival footage that they had planned to put into their original movie, and they created this entirely separate documentary. And so it worked as this beautiful teaser for the week ahead when the movie would come out in the theaters. And it was just billed as, this is the curse of the Blair Witch, a a, a documentary about this long-time uh, running legend about a serial killer. And, and so you, you see uh, there's even more hype now because you're not even sure if you're watching on the Sci-Fi channel if this is real or not. They, they made it very intention, intentional to say, we're not going to say if this is real. And so now you've got an entire documentary preceding the actual movie's <laughs> release to hype up drama and so that just only intensified things and it was really an ingenious tactic because you've already got a website you've already got people frantic on message boards wondering if this is true and then you add a documentary that people can't even verify and now you're starting to think well wait a second is this actually a real thing and i don't know if it was was a part of the documentary but they did like missing posters didn't they like it it, it made it look like this was a real missing persons case almost yeah, it was it was an interesting mix too. They they would go even into more offline and grassroots campaigns. Um, I spoke with uh, an author about writing about the sound footage genre, and she lives in Australia. And she even remembers in Australia they had uh, some online postings in the libraries and, and in shops around the town. Uh, uh, you know, these these essentially it was uh, you, you mentioned viral. I think that was a term just being coined around that time because of the internet, but. That was their own way to get off the internet too. You had these mysterious kinds of uh, postings and and and, and little uh, signages around town that would say, you know, th- this is really like a disappearance or a kid on a milk carton. Now it was, I guess you could call this guerrilla marketing. It was certainly brilliant, but it, at the same time, I think you know, to some, it, it was a hoax. It was misleading. Uh, that that it, it was about tricking people into going to see this movie. I mean, how 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 does history judge you? Do you think how should we judge it? I think I think it really should be judged on the fact that they took advantage of an incredible time. Uh, you know, in terms of technology, and they, they capitalized it. I think it's it's really hard in hindsight now to watch this movie and feel utterly terrified the way that people did when they first saw it. Yeah. You know, there was there's it's it's so hard in, in some of these movies to have the lifespan that they do. I think a lot of people now will put it down and, and say that it wasn't that um, influential or didn't have the same bite that a lot of other horror movies that have been influential and years later, you know, ha- have had. But I think for what they did was they they really provided the template for being able to kind of capture a moment 
and and really seize seize the moment there and really take advantage of the opportunities of online marketing and and people's you know people's worries or fears about the internet itself and and how it could but there could be this entire new world that nobody really understood or knew and so they that, that really should be its legacy was I was just really being able to find uh, on a moment and capture it and and take advantage of it because you know again 20 years later this would never work this just no. wouldn't people go people don't go to the movie theaters wondering if something is fake or real they know well in advance sometimes years in advance when a movie goes into a production you know right away so these, these guys had the advantage of being in the dark for a long time and so you know, the idea that you could uh, come up with something like this today. And you've seen, they've, they've done a couple sequels. They had a, they had a uh, Blair, Witch, Blair, Blair Witch Legacy movie back in 2016 that did not do very well financially at all. And it's just really hard to really recapture some of that essence. Yeah. So you can kind of see that in the way that it's, uh, it's, it's been portrayed in the last few years. But you do still see, and there's that legacy, uh, I think, in two parts. Certainly there were the movies that came after that tried to incorporate, you know, the idea of found footage or the handheld camera for, for scary effects. And, you know, just that, that legacy of, of viral marketing that, you know, people were trying to, to one-up that movie. What's the next way of getting buzz about your movie, getting people talking about your movie? And, and I think it, it had those two influences, didn't it? Yeah, and I think the the biggest one that I mentioned in the article is is Paranormal Activity, which came out in 2009. And I, I spoke with Oren Pelly about that, the director, and he's now produced all of the subsequent sequels in that franchise. I believe there's actually another one coming out next year they announced just recently. So it's still got a life. But, you know, a lot of these um, movies, you have to find a way to be authentic with it still. There has to be a reason, I think, for people to get excited about the found footage genre. And so a couple of these movies did really capture that. You know, Oren Pelly, he, he, he was making sure that he had a surveillance camera and that, that, that was the reason that this couple in this, in this haunted mansion wanted to figure out a way to, you know, find this de- demon that was, that was torturing them. And so you use, you don't use the footage, you know, the shaky footage, you use just the camera that's set up in their bedroom. And, and so there was different ways that they went about, that filmmakers have gone about that. And the, and the same way in the online marketing, like you're talking about, they used a really great campaign to promote will be using college towns and getting people to petition Paramount Studios to play it all over in their town so that it could come. And, 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 and it really built buzz over about two years since it premiered at Sundance. And, you know, movies like that that can just gradually get people interested and then have their own word-of-mouth campaigns, I think have been really successful. And you see it somewhat today. I also spoke with a filmmaker, uh, Anish Giganti, who did uh, a movie called Searching last year with John Cho. And that movie is entirely takes place through the prism of a computer and a phone screen. You know, mm-hmm. And the way they did that was they got a lot of people to come at to early screenings, they would take selfies on their phone, which is very, you know, a- apropos for the movie itself, and and they would use that in their actual marketing campaigns. You're seeing other people after screenings getting very excited and using selfies as a way to promote their own film. So it was always, it's always about being creative, being on the cutting edge of what can we do to get people to the theater. 
obviously there are so many streaming devices today. People just want to stay at home. They have the option to and really not miss a lot. You have to get people to the theater. And so how are you going to do that? You have to drum up an idea that if you're not going to the movie theater, if you're not taking part in this cultural conversation, you know, you're really missing out on something exciting. And that was what Blair Witch did, obviously, in 1999. And it's what a few movies have been able to do in, in the last two decades. Yeah. yeah, it certainly feels like lightning in a bottle, that's for sure. Uh, Jake, your piece is up. It's at nytimes.com. Also, as mentioned, uh, carried in the National Post here in Canada, nationalpost.com. Jake, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, too. All right, there you go. That's uh, Jake Kring Schreifels. He's a, a senior editor at Yankees Magazine, but a freelance culture writer for a variety of publications, uh, including, as he mentioned, The Ringer, piece today in The New York Times. I mean, this puts it in perspective. The Blair Witch Project had a budget of $60,000. That you could make a movie on $60,000 is impressive. Even 20 years ago. I mean, I guess today with um, iPhones and video editing, you could probably do it for less. But $60,000. $248 million was the box office. How's that for a return? Credit cards can be a useful tool, uh, especially in, in this day and age. People are doing a lot of uh, e-commerce. I mean, when it comes to booking hotels, flights, rental cars, all of these kinds of things, there are a lot of reasons why you might want to have a credit card. But it can be easy to get yourself into trouble. Ideally, whatever you're buying on your credit card, you're paying off. But a lot of people don't. And it becomes pretty easy then to, to rack up credit card debt and to keep carrying that over. And just making the minimum payments. So to what extent is it a problem? And to what extent do we need government intervention? Uh, New rules take effect today in Quebec. And I think a lot of other provinces are going to be watching closely. It's meant to to head off this consumer debt problem or this part of the consumer debt problem. Uh, So banks are going to be required to set a minimum payment of at least 2% of the balance owing. And that's actually going to eventually rise to 5%. So it's supposed to apply in general then to credit card users in Quebec. Of course, when it comes to the banking industry and its national and international nature, it could get complicated, I suppose. But the goal is to ensure that people are attempting, I guess, to pay off the balance on their credit card. So we don't have as much of a debt problem. So is this the right approach? Joining us uh, for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here today, Scott Hanna, who is the president and CEO of the Credit Counseling Society. You can find them online at nomoredebts.org. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, Great. Great to be here. I mean, so first of all, how big a problem is credit card debt in this country? You know, it's a a growing problem. And given the fact that um, the minimum payments and credit cards are relatively low in relation to the balance outstanding, We see that more people are turning to organizations like ourselves for assistance because they've gotten over their heads. And credit being relatively easy to obtain, um, people aren't necessarily making that correlation between am I living within my means or really am I living beyond my means and I'm able to mask that because I've got access to credit. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I guess from the bank's perspective, I mean, theoretically, banks are going to want to be paid what they're owed, but I guess they don't necessarily have a vested interest in addressing this problem because people are paying interest on these credit card debts. 
Well, you know, like, like all, like many industries, the banking industry is highly competitive. They're all looking to capture new customers, new markets, and so, you know, banks are are very astute at um, at managing risk, ensuring that they're not overextending funds to to consumers. But the challenge is the fact that, you know, while banks and other financial institutions and credit card companies have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of customers, they, so they can manage that risk. You and I, as individuals. Can only, man- can only manage our risk individually. So it doesn't take much mm-hmm. to have a setback that can put a person behind for a number of years. Why isn't it enough then to, to educate people about that, to say, look, you need to be careful that um, you don't want to live beyond your means, that you're going to be paying a lot of debt if you're carrying this credit card uh, debt with you. Why isn't that sufficient? It hasn't worked. And that's the unfortunate. There's a, there's a terrific amount of information out in the marketplace about this. You know, federally, our uh, Financial Consumer Agency of Canada has addressed this, formed committees on financial literacy, and there just isn't enough uptake on this, and there isn't sufficient education in our schools. And regrettably, um, both young adults aren't learning from their parents and then passing the information along to their kids about living within your means, being responsible, and being careful with credit. So as a consequence, many people learn through the school of hard knocks. Yeah. Did it used to be the case that that most banks, didn't they used to have mandatory minimum payments? Something close to 5%? Well, as a matter of fact, if you go back um, a couple of decades, the average minimum payment on a credit card was 5%. Is that right? So, historically, that's what we had on our, our Visas and MasterCards and, and department store credit cards. That typically what it, that's what it was. But whether through competition reasons, whether over the years, that percentage has dropped. So, you know, that average today on the credit card is around 2%. And the challenge, of course, is that with an average credit card having an interest rate of close to 20%, if you're only paying back 2% uh, per month, it means that... On a monthly basis, you're only putting 0.33 of 1% of your payment towards the principal balance. So you can be in debt for decades before that, that balance was paid if you're just paying the minimum payment. So you think this is a, a reasonable approach then? I think it's a reasonable approach because our government's been sounding the alarm for a number of years, and as individual consumers, we're just not taking sufficient action to get our house in order. You know, the longer-term implications is the fact that uh, people are finding it harder to retire in a reason- with a reasonable standard of living because they don't have sufficient money to save. And one of the key uh, culprits of that is the fact that too much of their paycheck is going towards servicing debt versus saving for the retirement. Is this something, though, that, that really the Fed should regulate? I mean, there, there would seem to me, I would think, some jurisdictional challenges here in, in having provinces try to, to mandate that banks do something when they're otherwise regulated federally, aren't they? Well, yeah, the banks are regulated federally. Uh, however, provincially, you have consumer protection uh, regulations and legislation. So um, it's done on a provincial basis for this purpose here. But keep in mind, too, that half the people uh, pay their balances on their credit cards in full each month, and the other half don't. So there's that fine line between balancing in terms of ensuring people are protected from um, harmful practices versus protecting people from themselves. And I guess if every province did this, uh, that that jurisdictional issue would kind of be moot then. And I suspect that um, our provinces are taking a look at this, seeing how it's, how it's going to impact consumers, what, is the, what are the implications, positive and negative. I personally believe that what's going to happen 
over time is that you're going to see people in Quebec with smaller credit card balances. Typically back in 20 years ago when people came to us for help, they perhaps had ten dollars to $12,000 um, outstanding on lines of credit, credit card debt, where today it's not uncommon for us to see clients with forty, fifty, or over $100,000 of unsecured debt. Well, and I guess if nothing else, if other provinces are going to hold off, we'll have that uh, kind of real-world experiment where we'll be able to look at uh, debt levels in other provinces and, and debt levels in Quebec. Yeah, I think it's a great way for, for consumers to start to wean themselves off. It's going to take a, period, a number of years before the full impact is felt. So I think it's, it's doing the right thing for the right time for Canadians. All right. Much more is mentioned at uh, nomoredebts.org. Scott, thanks for your input on this. Appreciate you joining us here today. Take care. Bye for All right, now. You too. Scott Hannum, uh, president and CEO of the Credit Counseling Society. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're very much concerned about credit card debt in Canada. They work with a lot of people who've gotten themselves in over their heads. They say the average Canadian, excluding mortgage, is carrying about $22,000 with a credit card debt, lines of credit debt, and other loan debt, which is substantially higher than in the past. So at what point does it become a broader societal issue? Because certainly we, we factor in consumer debt when we look at things like interest rates. If interest rates go up too sharply, what's that going to do for people who are carrying debt, etc.? Uh, at the same time, I mean, people need to be responsible for their own situation. So is this kind of intervention justified? It did used to be the case, as he pointed out, that 5% was fairly standard as the minimum payment. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, I guess that, that changed over the years. So Quebec is going to start at 2% that's eventually going to rise to 5%. The banks will have to mandate that their credit card customers in Quebec pay that much as a minimum payment each month. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.